Amen. Welcome to the EOS HD podcast. And uh, my guest today is Julian Harding. Hello. Or would you like to be called JG? Um, a lot of people call me that for short, just because it's quicker. So why not? Yeah, let's go for it. And uh, yeah, we're going we're to talk about cameras. No surprise there. <laughs> but we may at some point get very sidetracked. <laughs> it may, may be controversial. It may be boring. People have probably already tuned out now. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. What do you do? I make most of my living now uh, either making film solo, making film with a partnership, um, or freelance directing with, with crews and so on. I also have a YouTube channel, which you can find by searching for the strange handle Harding Mal Art, which is H-A-R-D-I-N-G-M-A-L-A-R-T, all as one word. Uh, but you can find that handle all over the place, Instagram, Twitter. Also, more recently, uh, I've been working a lot in Unreal 4, Unreal Engine 4, directing and creating a film in a virtual space, uh, which has been very interesting, and it is definitely a sort of direction a lot of things are going. I actually trained originally to uh, make uh, pop music. I trained in popular music and then in sound art and design. Um, as I'm chatting now, I'm sat in a fully equipped, soundproofed studio room. I also still do a bit of writing for um, professional music equipment. So I still write reviews for Sound on Sound magazine, which is a professional audio equipment magazine uh, occasionally. And I also still work uh, making their... Uh, monthly feature films as well, uh, which include things such as studio tours and, and, and techniques and that sort of thing. So really sort of across the board, um, media creation and direction in audio, visual and now 3D and game worlds. I'm, I'm trying to think back actually to how we uh, met. And I, I can't, I'm not, I think the first time we met in real life was a long time after we'd actually met in digital world, isn't it? Because I, I think we were both sort of knocking around in the early, early days of 5D and GH2 weren't we online, sort of some of the early people who were interested. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I only really exist in the digital world, yeah. uh, kind of like this floating uh, <laughs> a blogger, aren't I? But I remember we went to the Converge Festival in London. That's it, yeah. And we uh, sort of briefly met up there. And uh, it, it was uh, 2011 and all the DSLRs had just come out onto the scene. Yeah. So that, that was an interesting time. Yeah, yeah for those yeah. who don't know what it is, it would be interesting to describe what that was. And I, I don't know if it ran for any other years. I only remember that year being advertised, but it was a, it was a sort of series of talks, if I remember rightly, about the, the convergence of still and moving image making, right? There was a lot of mention because the 5D2 was quite new. Yeah, it was run by a filmmaker, a director called uh, Richard Jobson. And he was uh, he used to be in a punk band, I think, as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he'd set up this event uh, purely to get to network with other directors and filmmakers. Mm. And the overriding theme was the convergence of stills and video. Mm -hmm. So he had people like Vincent Lafore uh, shooting on the 5D Mark II. Yeah, and this goes back to the very early days of the sort of DSLR video movement, and how it was a community, and how a lot of people got to know one another through uh, through that uh, community. Really, yeah, uh, it was before all the hybrid cameras, the mirrorless cameras, before even cinema EOS came out. Mm. 
Yeah, it was actually before Cinemarius, I think, wasn't it? Unless it, unless there was already a C300, but I don't think there was, was there? I think no, was I, don't, I don't think so. I think it uh, trotted out with Scorsese on stage later, didn't it? Like, uh, and then it became sort of an established kind of work tool. But the the sort of acorn that turned into that big oak tree of Cinema EOS was the 5D Mark II. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've just looked it up, actually. EOS C300 was right at the end of 2011, so it was announced on November 3rd, so we, we were probably oh, just before it was announced, <laughs> if, if, you're, if it was 2011. It was likely, yeah. 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 I remember pros at that point were using very small chip digital uh, cameras, weren't they? There was not really a substitute for film that mm. wasn't um, very, very high-end, top-end. I think the Alexa came out in 2010, didn't it? Yeah, the other, the other thing that people were doing at the low end of things was using stuff like the... Panasonic DVX camcorders with that um, oh, yeah. adapter on the front, a 35mm adapter, so effectively the small chip camcorder would be filming a spinning glass plate, which would <laughs> then have a, a, a Nikon SLR lens on the front of it. And this, um, yeah, the spinning glass plate sort of gave this kind of, you were, you were shooting off of that, essentially the image was projecting onto it and it was spinning in order. So I can't remember why they span it, it was just for the grain effect or something like that, or to stop it looking sort of strange. Um, I, I never used them. I never heard about them after they were obsolete. Um, but a good friend of mine, who's still a director, used to use them. Yeah, I, I never used them. Yeah, it was it was hard to believe that that's just ten years ago. Mm. It sounds like a kind of steam train or something. It's pretty now, steampunk, it? isn't it? Spinning glass plate. Spinning glass plate. <laughs> so it was basically for people who don't know, it was a, a thirty-five millimeter lens mount on it, so you mm. could put like a Canon FD lens on there, yeah. or a Nikon lens. And that lens projected onto a spinning glass plate, mm -hmm. which was filmed with a macro lens onto a tiny little chip in the DVX100, or the Sony EX1, I think, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those days are long gone. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's completely <laughs> anachronistic now. But at the time of Converge, it was like that. I think at the time I'd probably shot my first music video by then on a 550D, if I remember rightly, because that was like the super budget Canon um, for those who shoot, who wanted to shoot a similar sort of thing as the 5D. So you had an APS-C sensor and you had magic uh, lantern on it so you could... Imagine them might have been slightly later, some of the features, but you could, you know, adjust the exposure. You could, um, on the 600D, you could adjust the bit rate and up the bit rate to kind of try and make up for, for the uh, fudgy softness of the video. But I, I think around that time, I just about made some music videos. And that, that was using a 550D, and that was what got me interested. Yeah, it was very liberating, though, wasn't it, to pick mm. up such a tiny little camera, go out and shoot stuff that... Uh, for for all intents and purposes, looked uh, pretty cinematic, like on somewhere like Vimeo. Yeah, just looking up, it was actually that the first video I shot on that was 2012, and and that was an interesting one because I I was using a 550D, and the, but the lighting setup was all um, decent um, hired lighting, so it was all Arri HMIs and Kino flows and that sort of thing. So I was shooting sort of solo with this tiny cheap Canon, but with proper lighting which just sort of proved to me how good 
the image was out of these things if you if you lit it well. But yeah, those, I mean, even in those early days, you could tell everything was going to change from that point on. I mean, now we're spoiled for how clean the image is and so on. Like the, I, I used to do quite a bit with the 550 now, and now using an S1H, it's it's comical how clean that is at 4,000. You know, <laughs> I used to struggle so, with that. Totally 1600. different league of image quality in it, but the mm. concept has remained quite similar, like a stills camera form factor. And uh, I think what was what what did you enjoy most about that era? Was it that the technology side was so interesting? Was it the creative potential just starting off, or was it something else? Maybe like the community of it. All of those things are. Um... Were, were nice to be around. I mean, I, I think the fact that it was quite a small group of people doing interesting things, especially with Magic Lantern, like you could go and chat to the few people online who were hacking out these cameras. <laughs> so there's something yeah. interesting. There's always something interesting about being a sort in that sort of rebellious end of things, rather than paying a load to hire or buy a camera. You're trying to make the best of something that that essentially isn't meant to do the job. So that was fun. Um, I, yeah, and you you did have to stretch things a little bit further to try and get the best image. I remember at the time. Shortly afterwards, somebody released a sort of separate optical low-pass filter that you could slot in front of. I can't remember what they were called, the company did, but you could slot in front oh, of these Oh, yeah, the anti-alias, anti-aliasing filter. Mosaic Engineering uh, That's it. came yeah. out with that, didn't they? Mosaic Engineering it released a ten, sort of 1080p filter. I, I, lo- I love all these tinkerers and hackers around <laughs> the camera technology. For me, it makes it much more a community than having all the features dictated to you by a corporate entity in Japan. Not mentioning any names there. I'm sure we can guess. <laughs> well, the, um, and, and now I sort of find that in other areas. So although, like now I'm, I was using a GH5 for years and years and the company I work with also had a, a C200 just for sheer convenience of the thing, but now I'm using an S1H. And that's got most of the stuff you need. It all just sort of works. So all the tinkering comes from other bits. Like I, I spend a lot of time um, using completely weird alien lenses, such as, I don't know, early 1900s brass projection lenses adapted or um, anamorphic, of course. I know you're big into that too, like p- putting together really odd anamorphic rigs out of bits. And even, even though that's getting easier as well, there's more companies uh, releasing things like the, like the FVD and so on. Yeah, and, I think um, the lenses side of the whole the whole last 10 years, the lenses have been one of the highlights for me. I think it, when you've got a fixed lens, small chip camcorder, you've got no creative expression on the optic mm. side whatsoever. You've just got a framing composition box and that's it. But there's a whole new universe to open up with the, the vintage lenses, the anamorphics. There's a whole history attached to them, isn't there? Like uh, Tarkovsky filming with Lomo Anamorphics on yeah. Solaris, and now suddenly these lenses are back in service on digital, which is pretty special. So yeah, yeah and the price increases that have gone with that. You know, there was a point I remember really early on, back in 2011 as well. I started picking up those old uh, Zeiss contacts lenses because I thought, oh, these are really good. It, it says Zeiss. <laughs> Um, but it's really cheap. Um, it fits on the on the Canon. That's great. I'll buy a bunch of these. I mean, obviously now <laughs> I bought a twenty eight mil f two back then for a couple hundred quid. I mean, now they're like, you know how it is, like a thousand or eight hundred yeah. or something crazy. Say, the sought after ones, like yeah. fast primes mm. or the more rare ones, uh, they just go astronomical, don't they? Yeah. Same with bonkers. the Iscorama. 
and like yeah, anamorphic yeah. stuff, uh, especially when they're not building them like that anymore. There's not really any new alternative to it. I was trying out the Siru. Is that how you pronounce oh, Siru, it? I think it is. Siru. Siru. Yeah. Siru. 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 Boo boo. Anamorphic <laughs> 1.3. And that, uh, it's got a nice, it's obviously not an Isco Rama, mm. but it's well built, sharp, uh, subtle. Quite cinematic. A bit like the LA-7200. you remember that big plastic Panasonic? Yeah. Was, a, was that a Panasonic um, camcorder focus-through sort of thing, wasn't it? It was like an infinity-focused anamorphic adapter. Yeah, the focus-through thing. That, it's got a bit of the look of that, but better. So I think it's good for the price. But, of course, it doesn't have the full-on anamorphic cinema character that yeah. something like the Esco Rama has. But then the Isco Rama is now worth four grand, isn't it? So yeah, I, again, that was one of those. I think when I bought that, that was about twelve hundred quid box with all the bits, and I thought that was a lot of money back then. And <laughs> <laughs> now it's funny how it all changes, isn't it? Now people are charging three or four thousand from it. It's, it's lovely. I've actually modded mine recently. Again, this tinkering thing, I got hold of a, uh-huh. a second-hand proxy scope and did the surgery myself, which I think I sweated more in that time than I have most summers. <laughs> um, but I did it as a challenge, you know. I wanted to uh-huh. not not cop out and take it to somebody else and have them keep it for six months or whatever. I thought I'm going to do this, get the tools. I'm just going to do it. You, 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 you take no risks. You, you have a sort of you know yeah. a less fulfilling life. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Exactly, and and it's fine. I tried taking apart a lens myself, yeah. and uh, the iris blades just fell out like petals falling off a rose. <laughs> and they were just like scattered all over my desk. And just as depressing, I'm sure. It, it was very expensive, that mistake. But I didn't Whoops. really do very much to it. I just literally took the, the, the mount off the back mm. and then took a little bit of metal out and it just went, yeah. that was the end of the lens. And it would have taken so many specialist little tools to get them back into place and stuff. And so yeah. I, I kind of just gave up. <laughs> But I did open uh, the 5D Mark III when, when you could replace the the filter yourself. Hmm. James Miller once uh, just opened up his camera and decided to take matters into his own hands yeah. to get a sharper image out of that Canon camera. So he just took the anti-aliasing filter out. And he also took a little bit the infrared block filter out as well. So you, get, you got yeah. this beautiful warm look to shadows and more dynamic range and... Purple fabric <laughs> yes, instead purple of black, <laughs> but it was a nice look. It was it had something about it. Going back to Magic Lantern, mm. I think uh, the 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 good the interesting thing that you compare between 2013 when that started getting going, there were really top end music video directors mm. using that using Magic Lantern. And you were one of them, using the raw uh, recording because there was nothing else really available, not from a full-frame sensor. So Magic Lantern gave us that for free, all kind of open source. Yeah. And now, most recently, Magic Lantern have been quite active with the the overheating issue and the the EOS R5. But rather than the community supporting that, it really turned against it with a vengeance. And it was sad to see it, really. Mm. Not everyone um, 
appreciated it. There was a pretty vocal group of people who were like, why are you hacking this? This is so stupid. <laughs> like, this is just amateurish. Like, why would you risk this? So that is interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know that had happened. Yeah, that 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 is quite odd, though, because because like you say, coming from a little bit earlier on, and it was such a vital part of using, like when I was on five fifteen, especially six hundred D, that was super hackable, and the work those guys did was just incredible. I mean, it, it opened, yeah, blew yeah. open the settings. You could use it as a proper, you know, little cinema cam. And if you, put, I I got that um, mosaic engineering OLPF filter to make it work as smoothly as possible at ten eighty. Used their hacking to up the bit rate, and it, it made the camera formidable. I used it as a B cam at a bigger production company sometimes, or as a C cam, and the footage cut in fine. I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah. we were using C three hundreds and that that as a little C cam, and it was it was great. It wouldn't have been usable as that if we hadn't had the hackers. It's, it's odd to see that attitude it is, change. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I put some videos out on YouTube mm. just demonstrating the the workaround. So if you did come into uh, trouble with the overheating, the fact that you could just slide the battery out yeah. and then carry on going, yeah. which is, um, okay, you don't have to do it. It is a little bit hackish, a little bit unprofessional. But it does and work. Just, but it works, <laughs> doesn't it? And it reveals an interesting thing about the technology that it's capable of more. But the vitriolic comments on that were shocking it was like uh, very demotivational and the amount of effort that went into finding a workaround for people to use uh, on that camera yeah just to get a bit longer raw recording wasn't it um yeah, to stop yeah. it timing out strange uh, times online well, Canon have had a really weird relationship, though, with yeah. their success with the 5D since it started, because it, it does seem like the 5D was a complete accident, doesn't it? I mean, they didn't really think... They, they, like, they put in this feature, I think it was 30p at first, wasn't it? 30p video recording in a large full-frame camera because it can do it and then then sort of forgot about it. It was like photo photographers can do a little video clip and it'll be fine. And then somehow it accidentally ends up on these sets. People go, wow, look at the depth of field. It's like having a VistaVision full 35mm frame film camera. We've just got to find ways to work around it. And, you know, people started making ultra-flat profiles and all that sort of thing. And yeah, for, so a while, creative, yeah. for a while, they capitalised on it. They, they were like, oh, yeah, okay, everyone likes this big frame camera thing, we'll, we'll, we'll allow it to run, we'll add those features to the 550D and the follow-up cameras. And it seemed at some point the corporate machine went, hang on, we mm. can put this in a professional body and once we do that, we can't really start, we can't really keep putting the same quality of features into the small bodies because we're going to cannibalize our own sales. And from then on, what could, what felt like, it was like typical of all revolutions, where it starts off with this high-minded ideal <laughs> and it yeah. ends up in this sort of slightly disappointing status quo returning in a different form. If that was the case, if that was the thinking at these companies, they weren't honest about it. Mm. At no point did they ever say, uh, we're, we're going to limit this feature on a Canon 5D Mark III because we want to upsell you to a higher margin product. At no point was there any open honesty about it, uh, it which is, uh, yeah, interesting. I mean, it is speculation on my part, but it, it just seems odd. And they even come out and deny it a lot of the time, don't they? Mm, mm. Um, but in my opinion, you're completely correct. Mm. I think the stills division came out with this feature of live view. They then extended live view into a video recording mode. Mm. And at, at that point, I think the professional 
video camera division bosses went, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and there was like this massive confrontation in the company, perhaps. I'm speculating. I don't yeah, really yeah. know what happened, although I've got hints from people about yeah. what happened. And uh, at that point, it became very political, I guess, because you got one division who was trying to do the best for the stills cameras, and you got another part of the company who doesn't want to see their core business disappear overnight. Yeah. Yeah. But then Canon would most recently come out in interviews and say that, no, that's never the case. There was never yeah, any yeah. intention to cripple the small cameras. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, when, it's, hard, it's sort of hard to believe, though, isn't it, when you see things like the... Um, like the... Sorry, I've forgotten the name of it. R5, wasn't it? Uh, come out with all those sort of little limits and bits and bobs and then like a few months later the 70D pops out and you're like, ah, that's uh, the... Sorry, the, not the 70D, um, the EOS C70 uh, comes Oh, yeah, out the most and, recent one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you go, oh, right. So I, was, cause I was thinking all the time, well, surely if there's all these limits on the R5, there's got to be something else turning up in the sea line. Oh, there it is. It's the, seven, <laughs> it's the EOS C70, and it looks great. Yeah. You know, it, it's lacking. You could, you could say that about the C70. There'll definitely be an 8K version uh, released around the corner, full-frame version, one with IBIS, one with RAW recording. It never ends, does it? As soon as you bought something, yeah. It's obsolete. <laughs> hey, you know, this was a conversation I had with somebody else recently because of because of a couple of things. It just the whole tech, the whole of the consumer technology sector suffers from this more than ever now because the speed at which mm. you know silicon dye processes and everything improves is so fast. Um, yep. So my edit machine, which is also used for bits of 3D and 3D rendering and modeling and Unreal and graphics and video editing, Resolve everything. So it has lots of GPUs in it. So I've got when I bought it new. I had two 2080 Ti GPUs put in it. Six months later, they're worth half. <laughs> They've lost 50% in value because the new series of GPUs <laughs> just came out, which are twice as fast. And yeah. uh, Tell me about it, mate. I bought, two, yeah, I bought two RTX um, 2080 Ti graphics mm -hmm. cards mm -hmm. months before they announced the 3080. It halved the value of the car overnight. Uh, yeah, it was bonkers. It was so fast. Yeah, so quick, yeah. So everything nowadays depreciates so quickly, doesn't Just it? It's a crazy treadmill, isn't it? Whereas glass, like you were talking about lenses, yeah. good lenses, unless they're locked to a weird format, goes up over time in general or, or, yeah, yeah. or holds its value, you know? Yeah, certain <laughs> lenses do. I mean, with the camera side... You, sometimes I just feel like jacking it in completely and going back to a digital Molex or something. Yeah. And just being creative with an image I love. Yeah. And uh, getting off that treadmill of resolution and dynamic mm. range and all that extra stuff. I mean, yeah. I love the love the S1H for that. Like I, I was looking because I was looking for a new camera. There were obviously loads of options, and the Sony. Mm -hmm. A7S three was just around the corner and all that sort of thing. But it's just, um, it's very bad at autofocus, but that's probably the least yeah. of my worries. But everything else is just, it's big and heavy, which I really like. A lot of people are anti-big, uh -huh. heavy cameras. I, I, I don't have gigantic hands. They're normal man hands. It's still tidy still... for a cinema camera, though, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's like a baby Alexa, great image. And I, I use it for photography all the time as well. I love the raw image out of it, the dual ISO, the, just the cold color. 
yeah. response of the thing, the fact that you can make it Alexa-like. I, I absolutely love just... Like yesterday, I was walking around with it with that 1900 and something brass lens stuck on the front of it <laughs> and just taking photos of absolutely everything and, and, and adoring it. And I've, I've seen things are already coming out with higher specs and I'm sure there'll be an S2H. Or, but, you know, you've got to... You've got to try not to be too constantly distracted and get drawn into like pre-order wars and all that sort of stuff and enjoy image making. It's very easy to get distracted. I mean, especially if you're interested in the technological progress mm. which is going on. Yeah. And I try to sort of uh, stay on the cutting edge of that for the blog. So whenever a new camera comes out, I try to buy it. Yeah. And that's led to the situation where I could probably start my own rental house now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's also part of you staying sort of entirely independent as well, isn't it? Because instead of yeah, getting yeah. Um, loaners and that sort of thing, but you, you go out and buy it in a shop. Sometimes I do get sent cameras. Most notably, Panasonic have been supportive. Yeah. So uh, they sent me the S5, for example. Oh, cool. So, yeah. But there's always a balancing act to, ha to have between these companies who uh, you may have friends at uh, because they're nice guys mm. and they're talented. Yeah. And you want them to succeed, uh, especially Sigma and Panasonic and these yeah. uh, companies. Not so much Canon. They've been really unfriendly all along. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the other... <laughs> and uh, I've not been very friendly to them either. But the, there's a balance, a careful balance to be had between maintaining your independent voice and opinions and uh, having strong feedback, strong criticisms... Mm. and, uh, you know, getting your hands on the cameras first. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's YouTube, YouTube creates this really bizarre mm. world around technology, especially where, I mean, I've only done a few vlog things myself, but the, the ones that I have done, the numbers are usually so high for anything that's based on, I mean, I'm not talking about super numbers, but compar comparative numbers um, are much higher for things that are just here's the latest bit of technology and me saying something about it as soon as I possibly can, uh, compared to stuff that actually contains what is useful information <laughs> for people who don't know it. Um, it's, it's all based around sort of hype and pulling that big wide mouth, wide eyed face or a ridiculous expression. Mm, the clickbait thumbnails, yeah. And having the piece of equipment first. And, and, and that's sort of... Yeah, it's a bit disappointing because there's, there's a lot of stuff if, you, if you're willing to go searching and it is quite hard to find anything that isn't the top person. But if you're willing yeah. to go searching, you can find interesting people giving out very interesting information that's creatively useful, but so much of it is product noise. Yeah, there's definitely good, uh, there's good content on YouTube and it's, uh, there's good people creating the content. Mm. The problem is the, for me, it's the medium is the message. So that problem, for example, with the thumbnails, yeah. just in order to compete, you have to have that ridiculous clickbait element <laughs> to the content, which devalues the art of it, really. So um, the the medium is television, but brought, brought into the new interactive social media age, isn't yeah. it, really? You shared an interesting post today, actually, um, about, about the BBC versus YouTube on, on Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was really interesting because uh, I can't remember what it said precisely, but I think it was something along the lines of that more people watch YouTube as a whole than the BBC on a daily basis in the UK, right? Yeah. So YouTube now in that age group of sixteen to thirty-five is hmm. getting more of a timeshare in terms of viewers than the BBC. 
or it's pretty much level pegging and about to overtake the BBC. So the BBC is obviously the biggest broadcaster in Great Britain. Yeah. So you've got one website essentially uh, now bigger than that, and it doesn't have an editor. That for me is dystopian because if you leave the the curation of culture and content up to a robot, you've got a yeah. massive dystopia. And it's complex, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. But, yeah. for example, in the old days of news on the BBC, for example, mm-hmm. you would have Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight. It would all be edited by people who knew current affairs mm. and who had ethical standards and guidelines and stuff. Yeah. And now with uh, Google, they cannot be bothered so they delegate all that moral responsibility to an algorithm, mm-hmm. a robot, some AI machine. So there's questions to be had around what that is going to do to culture and what it's going to do to kids, mm. young people, and all that stuff. So, yeah, what do you think to it? It's it's a really difficult one, isn't it? I mean, that there's the the hardest aspect of it is is that whole uh censorship and um curation one because if it's if it's all left up to algorithms it's so easy to get horrible horrible mistakes that no one's accountable for and um i mean i've only had a mild one once where i had a one account i uploaded some of my own music it was it was it was my music i'd written the song i produced it myself i uploaded it i made the image to go with it and then I got a copyright strike thing appeared, and then I right. the whole account was deleted summarily with no warning for mm-hmm. persistent. What was this? Something like persistent violation of spam rules or something. Right. And all I'd done is upload my own song <laughs> with my own images, and there was no. I, I emailed the thing back, and I said, "Yeah, I think there's been a mistake." And all I got was a response a few days later saying, "The decision has been upheld." And that's it. So it was very that was the end of the channel. Yeah. All the content gone. Yeah, I think. yeah. And it was only one thing, luckily. But imagine if that had been like you know ten years of videos or something, and then the mm. machine just went, ah, persistent spammer, and there's no way to. <laughs> it's it's a, so that that's really sort of frightening. You know, it's like a weird digital version of. Kafka or Terry Gilliam's Brazil or something where <laughs> some form, invisible form, just decides that you're the devil and well, it's <laughs> wipes so you out. powerful, isn't it? Imagine yeah. if the BBC had a hundred different channels and so much content that they couldn't even create or manage it or edit it or censor mm. it or whatever. And then they just decided to go, well, we've got Billy the robot hanging about. Maybe we can repurpose him to do it and see if he works, just, you know. But it gives them so much power, doesn't it? I mean, if if Google's AI decided that your type of content was not commercially profitable or it wasn't accepted due to some weird policy on political correctness or something, mm. they could, without any regulation, just decide to shut you off. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the terms of service in almost every one of these private businesses allows them to do pretty much whatever they want, <laughs> whenever they want. That's just how it sort of works. And, and the, the argument that's always been used to defend that is, well, it's, it's a private business and they have a right to do what they want. But I'm, I'm not sure how long that will 
hold up just because of the fact that they have so much power. I mean, the power to influence elections and the power to change thousands, millions of people's minds mm. about something overnight just by yeah. altering how an algorithm portrays uh, an incident or that or hashtags. And it's not just a, a bloke, is it? It's no. not just a, a manager. It's a natural machine that's uh, that's changing, you know, the the structure of society. Hmm. But, I mean, this stuff has been in, has been going on for a long, long time in with economics because of things like mm. BlackRock, um, compu- essentially computers that trade. Uh, mm. Computers have done the bulk of trading, as far as I understand it, for a long, long time, um, and they have to be reined in every so often because they go a bit bonkers and and start all seeing the same signs and doing the same thing at the same time. But that's, <laughs> so that's already been happening a lot in, in certain areas of, the, of our lives and we just don't see it. So um, now it's happening in culture. In culture as well, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, trading and banking is, is numbers, essentially. It's not... It might be a numerical representation of something that happens between people, but it's become numbers, abstract numbers over time. But we're sort of turning... At some point, culture is being translated into a set of abstract numbers, isn't it? And then uh, understood by machines that pump it back out at you in a certain way Mm. to give a certain effect. Have you ever seen that website you can go on, which is called uh, ThereTube or something? You go on there and you select a user profile. So uh, Google profiles everyone so Mm. it knows who you are, basically. And then it feeds you what... what the machine thinks you enjoy oh yeah so you can go on there as someone who's a bit into conspiracy theories and stuff and then the entire front page of google the front page of youtube and the recommendations all change into this sort of cesspit (laughs) bullshit (laughs) which explains a lot of how people get their views doesn't it really if that's what they're being influenced by. Well, I think this comes from the customer model as well, doesn't it? The whole thing was uh, yeah. with digital and social media was you're a customer we, and we're going to work out what you want and then because that's what you want, we'll feed you it. And unfortunately, that now happens with everything, politics, especially ideology. Uh, people are just fed back. It creates an infinite feedback loop to try and entrench you in your ideas because if you're entrenched, you're easier uh-huh. to put into a box and thus it's easier to sell you stuff. So <laughs> it, it sort of makes sense from the computer's point of view, but it, it seems... It's a lot easier to target adverts at you if, uh, if they have such detailed information, isn't it? And if they can put you into a little box and then they can uh, sell those ads based on whoever's in that box, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a goddamn scheme. Here we are on the conspiracy theories. At least this one isn't a theory, it's just literally how it works, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, no, there's nothing conspiracy or theory about that. It may sound like a bit tinfoil hat stuff, but it's actually, ha- that's the way it works. I don't know if you saw The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Yeah, I haven't actually seen it entirely. I, I started it and then I had to go off and do something. I'd probably like burn some soup or something and then forgot. But <laughs> it's, I, I saw the first little bit of it. It had these odd dramatizations, didn't it, on it? On it. And, um, yeah. and it was definitely aimed at people who'd never heard of this before, the first section at least. Yeah, there's an element of popular dumbing down to mm. it. It wasn't exactly a Louis <laughs> Theroux documentary. No. But it, 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 the dramatizations were a bit cheesy. But it was interesting to see one of the dramatizations involved a family who used smartphones mm. an awful lot and the effect it was having on the children. So there was a teenage daughter who was sort of taking selfies for Instagram, portraying her lifestyle as something that wasn't really uh, on, you know, because it's all a bit fake, isn't it? Yeah. Like, uh, 
And then she got just one comment from someone at school saying that she had big ears. And that created this downward spiral of mental right. health. Yeah. Because you you get this endorphin rush from good feedback. Think positive psychological reinforcement. Yeah. It's very important, especially at that age when you're a teenager mm. and you're a bit insecure. So got a question what the um social media companies uh, are doing to young people. I don't think it's very healthy, is it? That's a quite a scary thought, though, isn't it? Like um, when you think about, we were just talking earlier, reminiscing about like the early days of SLR and how how different the culture of it mm. is, the DSLR, yeah. but in just ten years. Um, but um, when you put it, when you apply it to something that large, like how someone will grow up understanding how, what human interaction is. Uh, in the last 10 years, that has really changed. Um, yeah, and, and I a, yeah, wonder if the medium of interaction between people, with it mm. being increasingly more and more digital, is responsible for more of this confrontation, the tribalism and the anger. Mm. And uh, I think everyone is affected by it, myself included. Mm. And whenever someone has a different opinion to me, or they're in a different uh, category of, you know, I like this camera and not this one. Yeah. It, I feel annoyed. I feel annoyed at them. It's and tribal. It, it does, even things like tribal, cameras become yeah. incredibly tribal. Like there was oh, always yeah. the whole Canon Nikon tribe thing back in the day when that was only the two two real options. Uh, but now, actually, I saw Gerald was saying, uh, Gerald Undone was saying an interesting thing on Twitter, wasn't he? was saying, oh, people didn't criticize the color on this Sony shot until I said it was a Sony. And no, I thought, I yeah, that is kind of interesting, that sort of thing. Like, um, to, to, to be fair, my criticism of it has always been how it reacts to like changing light temperature specifically. There's Whereas no if you consistency. Have, mm, Whereas if you yeah. have it in like a particularly controlled shot, you can make most things look good. But um, he's definitely right about the way people react. Yeah, if you're shooting an S-Log 3 and it's 10-bit and the latest Sony camera does have an improvement to colour signs. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I think I fired back on Twitter actually saying to Gerald that there was no consistency between models. So mm -hmm. like the A7C, even though mm -hmm. it has exactly the same sensor and the same specs yeah. as the A7 Mark III. Uh, has a completely different look in the standard picture profile, for example. And the S-Log, S-Gamut has a different tint more towards magenta yeah. on the A7 III and stuff like that. But when you're tweeting at someone, you've only got the 160 characters yeah. and it's hard to put across a nuanced view. Of course. So yeah. it always just, you get to the point and it can come across as quite rude a lot of the quite time. blunt. And yeah. then and there's an attack and it's like, well... I've seen someone uh, say that the colour was good. I don't agree, so I'm going to attack the shit out of them. <laughs> and it's really primitive. But in a in a face-to-face -face environment, in, in a pub, you would then have a conversation about <laughs> why you think this way. Yeah. <laughs> and or it would be very podcast. nuanced. <laughs> you'd, exactly. podcast, you'd talk for a long, long time about all these things and it would come out on the wash. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very different. That, that kind of distilling of all information about everything into a ridiculous thumbnail mug and, you know, short sentences on Twitter and so on. I, I think it's damaging not just to creative culture, but to culture as a whole. I, th I think it can be very distracting. I made a little video about this, that gear acquisition th syndrome thing. And I, I think it can be really distracting sometimes technology because it moves so fast and obsolete so quickly that it can really yep, yep. easily sort of take you away from the entire point of doing the thing in the pro 
first place, like what it mm. was that attracted you the first time you wanted to pick up a camera. Why did you want to make images? Um, it's really easy to get dragged aside now because there's so much competing, so many competing companies, so many products and so much changing specification sheets. And to be honest, back when I had a 550D and it was all really hard to make it work and I had two lenses, uh, I a lot of the time I was probably more creative than when I have had a set full of people and think all the stuff hired and that sort of thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of a different way of thinking. and it's, it's Definitely, 100%. The, the, the limitations of gear as well, when you've only got a, a few things to focus on, uh, you're more creative because you can focus on the getting around the limitations. But when yeah. you've got so much to contend with and so many options, the options take more your time and you're not using that time and focus on the shoot or the content or the lighting or anything else really so i think i was listening to one of adam buxton's podcasts yeah uh, recently and he has these hilarious jingles and one of them is you remember shane hurlbert the american dp mm. uh, hollywood dp who was working on the terminator salvation film was it one right. of the latest terminator films mm. with christian bale on it yeah and uh Shane, or was it Sean? Uh, he Shane was there. Albert was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was uh, diddling with his lights in the actor's line of sight a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Christian Bale had that famous tantrum where he just laid into him in this heightened state of emotion. Yeah. And almost finished his career, basically. I didn't know that was him who had that done to him. I remember hearing the yeah. freak out thing. It went around the internet everywhere, didn't it? Yeah. All that screaming. So Adam Buxton's turned it into a jingle on his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just Christian Bale having an epifit, just a massive tantrum. Yeah. And I would have hated to be on the receiving end of that. Uh, but anyway, that focus that... Shane obviously had in that moment on mm. the technical stuff, the lighting was clearly distracting for the cast. And that's something you need to avoid, isn't it? Not to distract from the main mm. job because you're trying to get ProRes RAW to work through HDMI yeah. and the Ninja 5 battery needs recharging or, you know. So that's like why I like to get all the complexity and hassle out of the way mm. so you can focus on the more important stuff yeah the pressure of those sort of situations as well anything with with lots of people or lots of money involved uh, everyone has to be the reason everyone has to be the sort of top person at their game and have focused very much on one part of it is so that they can do that one part flawlessly and have it in, the cogs all move and yeah if, if you i think in that sort of situation you're probably going to get some stick from someone if you're fiddling about and not just <laughs> getting it right first time but this definitely yeah. applies to doing stuff yourself like if you're if you're fooling around with settings non-stop and you haven't just practiced you know behind the scenes first you, you it's that sort of thing of the technology eventually gets out of the way of the art right mm. like if you practice piano enough eventually you can express yourself because you're not trying to do the technique it's just in you and i think it's the same with even with digital technology once you like one of the first things i do when i get a camera is i spend sort of two or three evenings while i've got some dull netflix binge on in the background just scrolling through settings and memorizing them it sounds boring but it means that when i go oh that's a really cool shot 
and I know I know where stuff is, and I can get to it quickly, and I, I'm more likely to get the shot than I am to sort of lose, uh, you know, lose it or lose my onset situation because I'm fooling around yeah. the settings. I think it's worth so like putting a shortcut in the dull time. to activate slow motion, for example, <clears throat> is it? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, and programming it's, it's all those custom to, modes. Yeah, good to get to know the tools. I think my journey has been a, a bit of a, a strange one for a for a cinematographer or a filmmaker or a music video director. Because yeah. I was doing that creative work in Berlin whilst trying to do ESHD at the same time. And you talk about cameras and tools and technology distracting. Well, bloody hell. Why have I got 40 cameras at the moment? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is my main passion? Is it going out, finding creative people, working with them and shooting stuff? Is it cinematography and music? Or is it reviewing cameras? And I've decided that it's not really so much reviewing cameras because there's no point reviewing them if you can't shoot with them. Yeah. And I think a lot of YouTubers um, don't actually shoot. They're professional YouTubers. A lot of them are professional marketeers, actually. They're not even <laughs> artists. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true of a lot of YouTube, I think, isn't it? Like, I think the a lot of the, the people who do it are... There are some, like, a, we bo I think we both like Gerald's stuff, don't we? Because he actually does go into the depth that you need in order. And he's very informative. And it's, he speaks nice and quick, which I like. Because normally YouTube, I listen to people at one and a half times speed because they're... They go, uh -huh. on, they go on quite slowly. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, spe he speaks fast enough that I don't have to do it. Yeah, a lot of the time you'd be watching a 10-minute YouTube video and it would tell you a few things that you could probably read in a paragraph of text yeah. in about five seconds. The yeah, actual substance is yeah. always somewhat in the background with these videos. Mm. But yeah, I like Joe Dundun's uh, channel. Excellent stuff. Yeah, but a lot of yeah. the others, you're right, are, uh, there's a lot of people who are... Uh, they're on that sort of treadmill of constantly yeah. having to promote new things. So relentless, isn't it? Yeah. Like one day it's the Ari, I've bought an Ari Alexa, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the very next day it's something completely new and different and the Ari Alexa is mm. completely forgotten about. Yeah. That to me is a form of insanity. <laughs> it's bonkers. I, I, I'm personally, I couldn't do you it. You can't compete with that, can you, as a filmmaker? Why would you want to compete with that? Just... <laughs> I'm going to leave them to it there. Hmm. I'm not even going to try to produce like a video a day. It's a different life, isn't it? It's at that point, you're, you're saying the point is the YouTube channel and the views, which means, you know, and that is now the only way to get big at it, isn't it? To treat it as your profession. Um, because, because the you know, and the nature of things is it'll always push to the most extreme anyone's willing to go. And there's hundreds of people who are willing to try it as a profession. So if you're doing yeah. the odd video here or there, like I do, they don't get an impact because you have to be continuously... They, they want the creators to be addicted as well as the people who consume it. And I think... Um, I think there's a lot of money involved as well. And I mean, not everyone can afford to go out and do what Potato Jet does unless he's got some link with a rental house or a, a big sponsor. What's, what's that channel? I don't know that one. Uh, I've only dipped into it a few times. I mean, he seems like a nice guy. He's got charisma mm. and humour. But then it's like that's an example of the relentless pace. Like I've got a new camera every day type thing. Right. One day it's a C300 Mark II. And now my favourite camera is the A7S Mark III. And it's like, well, just settle on one and show mm. us your work, quite frankly, sometimes. I, think, yeah. I feel that like... Um, 
I admire people who have shooting talent, who have creative voices, who are outspoken and have things to say. So uh, the marketing side, the sort of promotion of cameras, that's a very valid career, but it's not so much what I'm interested in yeah. to see. And uh, I think a lot of people are kind of duped into a lifestyle of mm. consumerism through yeah. YouTube, myself included. Like uh, I bought 20 pairs of headphones once because I was watching <laughs> a channel called Z Reviews and I was a bit bored. So I thought, <laughs> I'll go down the rabbit hole just this once and buy a pair of headphones because this guy seems really enthusiastic about it and he's he knows what he's talking about. A genuine enthusiast, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, and I liked him. Nice guy. So I yeah. bought this pair of headphones and sure enough, it was amazing. He was absolutely right about it. And then I found it quite addictive just to see what the latest thing he was talking about. Uh, next episode could be an amplifier or it could be a DAC yeah. or it could be another piece of audio hardware. Mm. And eventually I must have spent thousands of pounds yeah. on this stuff, really enjoyed it. But then it's hard to just turn off and stop. And it's like, because they're relentlessly putting new interesting stuff in front of your nose. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I want that. Or it's only 50 quid, I'll get it. And yeah. Amazon deliver it the very next day. Of course. And it's like teleporting stuff from the YouTube video into your house. <laughs> so addictive. There's a couple, yeah, there's a couple of addictions at play, aren't they? One of them is that yeah. there's, there's that thing where... Um, we've managed to create a sort of main line into the vein of products with things like Amazon. So you can literally... I know people have confessed this to me. I've only ever done it a couple uh -huh. of evenings, but you, where you just end up buying stuff because you can. Because it's like the, the, there's more of a thrill in the, yes, I'm buying it, and it turns up the next day. And then when you've opened the item, it's like, oh. And I spotted that quite early on, this sort of that the thrill was not in the having it, the buying it, and I've tried to curb it ever since, like trying to avoid it. But it's so easy to get into that sort of yeah. endorphin trap and it's the it's definitely the true of camera gear. Like you'll see people on Facebook groups, especially uh, talking about buying stuff, and then they'll if it's a camera specific one, like a you know GH5 group, they'll buy it and they'll be like, oh, I love it so much. And then two weeks later, it's for sale on the same group, and you think. I think what you did was get really into the researching bit, get really into the idea of having it, yeah, enjoyed the very purchase, enjoyable, yeah, yeah. and then didn't actually. And then when you had when you had the responsibility of making artwork with it, you went, oh. <laughs> well, I'll sell it then. <laughs> this, this bit's hard because yeah. it's but easy it's to do. Immediately lost its uh, novelty yeah. and all its aspirations have vanished. Also, it's because the easiest uh, now part. the hard work comes. Yeah, yeah. it's by far yeah. the easiest part. Is buying stuff. I mean, buying stuff yeah. is, is simple. <laughs> it's it's really hard to, to 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 make things work. I mean, I've always tried, although I've failed repeatedly, like we all do, uh, to to avoid that. With cameras, I've been good at it, and I've only had I had a GH5 for like four years or whatever. I just got the S1H. Um, and I've had the C200s and 100s before that for like four or five years each. I've tried to go, I've decided I'll, I'll do it. But, but in that time, there were things where I just bought it and sold it. Like recently I got a GoPro 8 because I thought that would be a great thing that I'd use loads. And I, I realized once I got it that the idea of using it for stuff was great, but I d it just didn't fit into the kind of thing I made and it's gone already. Exactly. In my case with the GoPro as well, yeah. I bought the GoPro thinking, wow, this is amazing. It does 4K and it does slow mm. in something the size of a matchbox. Yeah. And I was like, 
so what shall I use it for then? Because uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not that, really that exciting, you know. I don't that, do a yeah. lot of... My of, life um, wasn't exciting enough for no. the GoPro. I, I thought about strapping action. it onto the front of a U-Bahn train in Berlin yeah. and getting this amazing shot. But then uh, how would I get it back again and would I kill myself in the process? Yeah. And, yeah. and someone would come and tell you off, wouldn't they? It is Germany. Yeah, yeah, in a violent German voice, yeah. <laughs> You'd definitely get told off. We could talk about Berlin. I mean, you've visited mm. before, haven't you? Yeah. And uh, I used to live there for like eight years. Mm. And, uh, yeah, just going back to when I first moved there and the reasons for choosing Berlin, it was about 2008, 2009, and my friend was a musician, and he was hiring a, a music studio in Manchester. But it was uh, very expensive and it was above a nightclub. Mm. So whenever he wanted to record, <laughs> he had this booming bass coming yeah. through the floor. That's not good. And he was like, uh, and I was living in Manchester at that time as well. And it just didn't quite feel like we had the space or the creative uh, support. And everything was being sold off and commercialised. So we thought... Yeah, where's the place to go now then? How about somewhere that used to be half communist? Because yeah. <laughs> surely that still has a community of artists. Yeah. And sure enough, it did. And it was amazing, like yeah, 10 yeah. years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, like I really enjoyed my time there, to be honest. I mm. may one day go back, but going there in the first instance was so easy. There was no paperwork didn't even have to tell the government you were living there. And he just rocked <laughs> up in a van. Yeah. Got a music studio the size of a massive office for like 400 euros a month. Yeah. Which you could also live in because it yeah. had a shower and yeah, a yeah. kitchen. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Brilliant for artists, that yeah. is. And now, um, how? How would you do that even in oh, somewhere like Berlin? It's Back all... in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it'd have to be in the sticks, wouldn't it? And mm. then you'd have no collaborators and no people. And the local farmer would probably come and stab you to death in the middle of the night. Take pot shots <laughs> at you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who's this hipster down in my farm? I'm guessing that like everything as well, as, as you must have early on been able to find like great lens bargains and stuff because uh -huh. there weren't so many Americans and, uh, um, in Europe and other Europeans from wealthy countries like get there especially to get that I, I guess you must must have yeah, found, found some cool a, stuff found a disco rama for 50 quid once <laughs> bastard <laughs> it had been plucked out of a like a, an old German doctor's basement after he died and his wife I think just thought what's this piece of glass yeah. maybe it was a piece of medical equipment uh, we'll give it to an expert to analyse so that's how it ended up in the Berlin camera shop Mm. where I bought it. And the the owner of the camera shop didn't really know what it was, really. Um, he was a stills photographer, so he didn't know what an anamorphic was. Yeah. yeah. I sprung up and uh, took advantage. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I knew there were bargains to be found, but uh, but, but that's, that's still pretty extreme. Well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're just getting a lot rarer. Because mm. like I say, uh, it's very easy to know the value of everything these days just by mm. looking it up on eBay, isn't it? I mean, eBay, I do wonder if eventually someone will do a camera and lens only eBay because Reverb.com um, mm -hmm. is is basically that for audio gear. And the, the unique selling point it has is not just that it's 
basically for one type of thing. So you can go there and search for it and find people who are interested in selling and buying that thing, but also that their fee cut is much lower. So oh, as a seller, you keep more money and it's got far less of the bureaucracy that eBay has now. Where it's, eBay's got the AI thing we were talking about earlier where it's always saying, we've detected you're saying this in a message and it thinks you're trying to defraud them out of money, oh, yeah, even yeah. if you're not. You can't even pass along your email address in a private message anymore. No, exactly. It reads it. Yeah. I think eBay are a monopoly. And, uh, but the other thing that's lacking whenever you have an online service is that community aspect of it. So mm. if you had a hall of musicians all talking and buying and exchanging equipment, uh, you'd surely make friends and make contacts mm. that way. And it would be an enjoyable way to spend a Sunday afternoon. But eBay yeah. just isn't the same. It's an individual shopping pursuit, really, isn't it? Where yeah. you have a seller and a buyer, and that's the extent of it, really. Mm. I mean, Reverb uh, have done quite yeah. interesting stuff with their platform where because it's focused on music. They've actually made some quite nicely produced video content about music production and particular old pieces of kit and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, there's probably room for a sort of camera yeah. and video version of it. There's, there's way to create communities on the internet for sure like forums uh and that kind of blog content mm. but um what i find disturbing is that i don't want the other side to disappear mm. the face-to-face -face meetings and and things like that and events like i really enjoyed going to ibc last year yeah even though it's full of uh salesmen mm. And gobshites. <laughs> <laughs> is that one that is that in Messe in Frankfurt? It's not or no. Is it in uh, it's Holland? in Amsterdam. I see it, Amsterdam. I'm yeah, it's a it's a good show though. I now have been in uh, through the coronavirus pandemic, and now the apocalypse is about to restart again. Yeah. I'm beginning to miss meeting people face humans, to face. Yeah. Actual humans, humans, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Who was it who said he, it was a punk guy? Was it the Sex Pistols lead singer? He said, um, he was asked by a music journalist, why don't you make music for the man on the street? And he just said, well, I've met the man on the street and he's a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very Johnny Rotten, yeah. Probably was. That's it, Johnny Rotten, yeah. yeah. But um, that's how most of the time I think of people on the internet like it's a <laughs> form of road rage mm. i get very annoyed with people behind the screen because of the way they act and all the trolling and stuff and yeah. that in turn turns me into a hostile entity as well who just has a very short patience for people um, but it's not like that in real life. It's completely different, isn't it? And one of one of the things that happens um, online is almost like well, I came up with this phrase for it in another pub conversation. It was a bit what this is like a sort of extended digital pub conversation. But the <laughs> uh, is I, I said it's like the externalization of the id. You know that Freudian id, like um, if you think it was what they used as the monster in Forbidden Planet where it escapes your dreams and then goes and smashes everything up and acts like a lunatic. That's based on the Freudian id and it's this notion of this like tantrum-throwing horrible part of your personality that just lives in everybody. But the internet seems to basically say, especially things like Twitter, which are based mm. around creating arguments and conflict essentially and rewarding yeah. addiction and conflict. So it's like the ego unfiltered without any social filter on it and it just springs up doesn't it yeah if i if i pop it open 
in Wikipedia, id, ego, and superego are the three uh, are the three aspects, uh-huh. and it lists id as the instinctual component of personality. Um, so it's the source of bodily needs and wants, <laughs> emotional impulses and desires, especially aggression and libido. I think that pretty much uh-huh. <laughs> sums up the internet. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I mean, I think for some people, cameras yeah. are the extension of that, aren't they? Mm. So they get very invested in Anything can be, yeah. Sure. About equipment, about whether you're an Android user or an iPhone user, mm. a PC or a Mac. Intel like, or AMD, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, a Trump fan or a Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah, Clinton Biden, didn't have any yeah. fans. Biden, yeah. yeah. So you can see now how these, yeah, how these social media profiles are pouring gasoline on the divisions, can't you? Because uh, Facebook, for example, has a profile on everyone. And so it knows what your prejudices are, what your bias and what your opinions politically are. And then it'll carry on feeding that so you become entrenched in that mindset and you never hear the opposite view from anyone. For example, I had this with, right, back on on film and so on, I had this on Netflix recently where on my Netflix it has like, though you can make four, I think it's the one with either two or four people at once. I can't remember which I pay for, whether it's the 4K or the HD one, but either way I can have multiple people watching at once. And I pressed the wrong one out of the people I have on my Netflix and... Not only can you do you get different suggestions, but you can. There's literally things they can see that I just can't find. If I search for it by name, I'd get it, but if I'm uh-huh. just scrolling around, I won't see it. And that is, it's it's like giving you yeah. a totally different impression of what's available. You you can, you don't see the whole catalog because there's so much. Yeah, it reminds me of what the YouTube uh, CEO in in the UK, the regional director, said mm. in that Guardian article. He said that. Um, we don't delete content, we just demote it and we make it invisible for certain audiences. I mean, th- this is why the BBC as a concept for me was so important mm. to the UK and to us growing up, really, and to d- democracy and all that, because you had skillful editors who, with balance, would put different opinions and arguments on the screen. And, uh, of course, YouTube isn't doing that, really. So it's no wonder we're in a bit of a dystopia, really. A bit of a mess. <laughs> a bit of a pickle. At least we can shoot it um, with the best quality we've <laughs> been able to. Though. So we're going to be able to, you know, the revolution and the, the chaos and the destruction will all look lovely when we get time to process It'll it afterwards. Be you know, beautiful. Be gorgeous. 240 frames a second. <laughs> Yes, things on fire in slow motion. Fire always looks good in slow motion, you know. It's always great. There's something very primal watching a fire, isn't there? I love to just watch flames and yes. that kind of thing. And filming. It's and, always uh, great to test your dynamic range. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of this recent thing where the UK government have come along to artists and said, uh, sorry you're unemployed, uh, you you." performances aren't valid, they're not viable anymore due to the pandemic and social distancing. So how about you retrain in cybersecurity? <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw, I saw that. It, it, it unfolded yeah. over the day, didn't it? There was, they, they first had a picture with one or two, if it was a wide version, ballet dancers, and then aside it says, uh, 
Fatima doesn't know it, but her next job could be in cybersecurity. And everyone took it on the back of Rishi Sunak's comments the other day about retraining to say, well, if you're an artist, why are you bothering? Go and do something people actually want. Yeah, it's pretty sad, isn't it? I mean, it, the, 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 that attitude to the arts, though, is sort of, seems partly driven by um, the notion of everything as content, just the word content. Like, I don't think of films or music or whatever as just background content like like a meal yeah, isn't plate I, I content is word, it it's, content it's creator just... it's like you're just a tap which a businessman turns on and out comes content or it's like a what we can strap the adverts around you know the adverts are the most important bit and the content is just the word for the bit that's in between the ads yeah. right no one wants that the content <laughs> is something that um is leveraged for financial profiteering yes. isn't it in, in their minds. I think the, the UK government see artists on the whole as being like disposable uh, mucker, uh, muckabouts, just mucking about, around. But actually for a ballet dancer, that's their life. Yeah. I mean, and that's how a full, could you that's possibly a think that, job. yeah, how could you think a ballet dancer or any performer or a musician would suddenly be willing to just give it up and go and get a different job. I mean, well, most most dancers will have some kind of part-time job anyway because it's so bloody hard to make a living out of it. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a misplaced ad anyway. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, performers have to have a second job and they have to be skilled in promoting themselves and all that stuff and doing other roles. Hmm. But I find that to, uh, to destroy the dignity of an artist like that by implying that they're career is somehow unviable and how and have you considered just moving on it's disgusting and yeah, it really terrible. riles me about the attitude that a lot of uh commercial people and government officials have towards the the arts as mm. if culture is just a sideshow to the main event yeah it's always been very imbalanced as well in the uk anyway where where for example arts council money i think out of the music funding that's in the Arts Council, something like 70% goes to opera and the Royal Opera House and so on. So it's always mm. been sort of swung towards certain forms of arts yeah. uh, rather than others and what, what what just fits with the particular world of funding and funding applications. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have struggled. Like I know from my own part, my own business, we had so much stuff cancelled as soon as the lockdown thing kicked in globally. We had jobs in the States and Europe and it'll just disappear. And I'm talking about a lot of jobs, like a, uh-huh. like almost a year's worth of money. Um, oh, so I, I did have to just go, what am I going to do next? And I started doing lots of um, cinematography in a virtual space. So learning to use the Unreal Engine to um, move cameras around and that sort of thing. And then I've recently been... Oh, that's very interesting, yeah. Recently been working doing some game trailers so working with filmmaking and film direction in a virtual space um so yeah i mean sometimes a bit of side sideways thinking is useful like the pressure made me go oh shit i'll I'll, I'll have to learn something that works virtually and to look at unreal and that's been a very interesting experience it sort of opened up a different avenue not just of income and work but also a different way of thinking about filmmaking as like a sort of unlimited virtual space is that, have you ever used things like unreal engine have you ever looked at them or these these render engines no not really i guess you can play with virtual lights mm. you can uh have shadow mm. sets and it's very cinematic i think the skills that a director or a cinematographer has can definitely be transferred to mm. a virtual system like that uh 
I bet it takes some learning, though, doesn't it? It does take some learning. There's the, what's interesting about it, though, is how the how similar the cameras are now. For example, in Unreal, a lot of people are using that for virtual production now, where it combines with virtual sets with real-life production using big LED screens and stuff. But also, if you're just making a film with, say, game character assets, uh, the cameras, they call them a cinematic camera, and you drop it into the scene. Nice. And then you can make rails, and you can make a jib arm, and that sort of thing. But all the controls, that you, you can tell it uh, like the sensor size so it has presets like DSLR and VistaVision and all that and it has you can set your uh, aperture and you can set the millimeters of your lens so you, you can use it just like a real life camera but in a mm. sort of unlimited way yeah with the simulated bokeh that 3D engines are getting very good at reproducing I know there was an yeah, Australian director who has set up his own virtual studio mm. so it's like a, a big sound stage really and within that, he can render uh, pretty much any set, superimpose the actors into it, which uh, must give him a lot of creative freedom. And then it must be quite satisfying to be based in this little warehouse, inviting acting talent in yeah. to do script readings and stuff. And then without any location scouting or anything, just going and shooting it. Yeah. There's a guy called Matt Workman you can look up. If you, if you want to have a look at sort of people working in this space who's done a, done a fair bit with it. And there's a lot of others as well of doing... That's called virtual production, though, what you're describing, where you, um, you... The way people tend to do it now is they have... It's very expensive to set up, but they have a lot of very, very powerful computers. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they'll have a big wall of LED screens and a ceiling of LED screens as well uh -huh. on the big ones and then a, sometimes a green floor. And um, they'll, they'll make us a, a virtual scene... And then the scene has a virtual camera in it and the real life camera, like a Blackmagic one with like an SDI or what have you, can communicate what focal length and aperture and so on is on the real life camera, communicates with the virtual camera and then it changes the backdrop as it's depicted on those LED screens to look like it should, like your actor looks in the real life. So if you pull focus and your actor goes blurry and the background would be sharp, that will happen in the on what's on the LED screens. And if you pull focus to your actor, it works in there. I see, yeah. So there, the, the role of the camera shifts, doesn't it, to like a data unit, which is providing metadata to a, a central computer. Yeah, it's both. The, it's the it's actual, doing both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you're, you're getting the real-life feed of the actor, which is, you know, the real lens and the real sensor, but also all that metadata is being pumped out to a machine that in real-time, and they have to be fast to do it in real-time, but in real-time is, is making the set react as if it's being shot for real. But it's, it's just becoming more and more popular because it means, like you say, you can build a virtual set, turn up at one place in a very controlled environment uh, and shoot a film. I haven't used it yet. I'd really like to, but I've just been researching it and looking at it. It, it is fascinating, though. Maybe. Maybe that will play a big part in future filmmaking, especially if uh, social distancing is going to be a thing long term. We're going to need more freedoms. We're going to have to go back to some kind of normality. Otherwise, people are going to go insane. <laughs> and if the, they can't protect all lives, it's gonna, there's going to come a point where the risk will be low enough for us to go back to normality and we'll have better medical treatment and vaccines and all that kind of stuff. And I'm hoping and praying that at that point, all the extreme rules and regulations in the health and safety will vanish. I mean, the government spent, I think you said, about half a trillion pounds on bailing out the banks. 
but the, they've invested about one billion in propping up the arts mm. this this year. Uh, if that, I think it might might be one million. I don't even know, but what, whatever they're doing, um, I feel angry about the lack of support for filmmakers and for artists, and. Um, I got a feeling eventually we'll have to pay it all back anyway to a bank. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it was about one and a half billion in the arts package, but obviously you, you oh, don't know how that split out. And it was always, it always the way it worked before was about sort of 70% to what they called high arts. And then everything else kind of suffered. And it, it, it's sort of, you know, that stuff isn't going to reach the average Joe no, privateer filmmaker or what have so you. so thinly, won't it? But I don't think the money is actually the main thing. It's the livelihood and the um, freedom to go and perform and to act and to sing, isn't it? And a lot of these people must be so sad about not having an audience anymore and not being able to go into a bar or do stand-up or whatever, you know. Um, It's the cultural side that is hurting, I think, Mm. from the pandemic. And that's where the government has completely failed to understand or protect it. They just keep throwing money at it and mm. not enough money anyway. And then, you know, yeah. But I'm glad you've been able to find, like, alternative. It's about being creative, isn't it? And about grasping the opportunity out of it. Yeah. yeah, luck is a big part as well, yeah. It's it's a combination of things. You, the people say you make your own luck, but usually people only say that when they've been lucky. I mean, it, it's it's sort of, <laughs> it's a combination of things, isn't it? You can, you can, what you can make is your own ability to capitalise on luck when it arrives by choosing your skill sets, how you train yourself and how you keep yourself up to date with what's going on. But you can't manufacture things dropping into your lap by accident. And this sort of did be able to actually get a get a role using some Unreal stuff shortly after learning it was just, I happened to choose to do it because I thought it was the future. I told a couple of friends about it and one of them happened to get back and said, uh-huh. oh, you know, there is something you could try doing with this company. And then they said, okay. But I could quite easily have said that to someone and then not know somebody who was using it for business. So it's still luck. But I, I think it's always worth keeping an eye on what's yeah, happening, definitely. like where you see the world going. On the one hand, there's opportunities and um, uh, things like Unreal and the virtualization side. But the other side, if you look at the big picture, like yeah. take an eagle-eyed view of the whole world, and if the whole thrust of the future is the virtualization of every trade and every yeah. art, then that, that for me, misses a lot of the good stuff about what art is and about filmmaking and the collaborative face-to-faceness of it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, there, there are big productions underway. I have a friend friend of mine who's working on a, um, a Hollywood one at the moment that's in production. And, um, you know, there's lots of... So they have to work through the social distancing and all that sort of thing. And they've had to double the amount of crew on certain things to have them on shift so it's not crowded and all that sort of stuff. But they're getting around it and they're, they're, they're making... They're making films still, um, but but you know the other end of things is how film is is consumed and and you know was it Cineworld just closed all of their cinemas in the UK yeah, yeah. and um, one of the other chains has gone down to one or two days a week I think it's only Friday and Saturday so you know that the whole chain is in trouble so even if people are making film and not everyone is a lot of people are postponing as well but even even if people are making high budget films there's still the consumption of those isn't is no longer going to be a, 
a sort of group exercise. Yeah, just, just as a, a, an example, the latest James Bond film has been postponed again and again, hasn't it? And then yes, yeah, yeah. it's going to come out a year later than planned. Yeah. But that leaves the cinemas without the ticket receipts. Mm-hmm. So financially, it's a complete disaster. But I can understand why they postpone it, because the general public are just not willing to take the risk and go to the cinema, maybe come back with some popcorn and coronavirus. <laughs> They'd rather just <laughs> open a web browser and go on Netflix. Yeah, and they don't want yeah. to spend, you know, 18 quid a ticket and then buy a yeah. £9 hot dog and all that sort of stuff. Like, it's yeah. so expensive anyway. And wear a mask maybe for two hours in the Well, cinema. you're supposed to, yeah. I think you are supposed yeah. to wear a mask. So, so it's, yeah, you, it's just the whole, you know, the experience is, is poor and um, very expensive, and, and that's not a good combination if you're trying to sell something to anybody. It's a perfect storm, really, isn't it? I mean, the yes. cinema experience before was flawed, and it was expensive. Yeah. And now you've got Netflix as a challenger, as a rival, and now you've got a global pandemic, which is the final nail in the coffin, really. Yeah. It's, it's going to have nailed, nailed, nailed and, and well, lost nail into a lot of coffins, though, isn't it, for certain parts of culture that were already really struggling. Like, I know that yeah. in Cambridge, for example, um, the the live music scene compared to sort of 20 years ago is is so tiny. It's contracted so much. And then, then, the, uh, then uh, mainly because of property prices, and it's like they call it the Silicon Fen. It's like the San Francisco of the, east, of the southeast of England. It's incredibly expensive, and a lot of property leaching goes on, you know. Hey, Cambridge is a, a city that has given us Pink Floyd and Radiohead, I think. Yeah, I was at Radiohead was Oxford, wasn't it? And Cam- was it Oxford and Cambridge? But either way, it's the Oxbridge sort either of way, bubble. Either yeah, way, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a shame to see the music scene. I think the music scene is shrinking kind of everywhere yeah Be- and i don't quite know why because surely people still like music i think music and film have both suffered a lot compared to computer games with the younger generation i mean because that that mm. was the unreal thing that i'm doing is working on game trailers with a oh, company that specializes in game trailers and and those companies have have the budget now to make trailers you know um Whereas some bands recording records now or going on tour will spend less on making an album than a game developer will spend on making a trailer for the entire game. <laughs> um, and film is like, it's such a difficult proposition. They used to say in the UK that a sub-micro-budget film was a million pounds. Um, and that was like, I don't know, 15, whatever years ago. And now uh, people make films on an absolute shoestring. And then getting those in somewhere is you know, it's just going to be online. Where are you going to get it seen out and about? The amount of the complexity of those deals, getting stuff shown is 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 very high for the average Joe yeah. filmmaker. So, so all, all the roads seem to lead uh, back to online and back to a yeah, computer screen. Which I agree is sad. Yeah. I and, mean, it's, uh, it's, it's going to need a hell of a <clears throat> reboot after the pandemic, isn't it? Real life. Yeah. Just <laughs> to get us outside again, give us a reason to go outside. I mean, I think um, one of the things that's improved massively, though, as well, is is the quality of home cinema. I mean, yeah. I, I have a projector that I bought on an Amazon 
Black Friday, Black, was it Black Wednesday or Friday? There's lots of different black days now that are, uh-huh. that are cheap um, or cyber something or other. Anyway, one of those sale days and it was like 120 quid or something, which is obnoxiously cheap for a 1080 projector. And it's obviously awkward. It doesn't have like the physical shift thing. So you have to put it at an angle and then digitally shift the image around, which means you're losing some pixels. But it looks fine. It's got a lot of input lag, so it's not good for gaming. Um, but for film i mean i i just watch everything on that now and it was 100 odd quid it's and and i have that plugged into a stereo that wasn't particularly expensive either and i have a great experience and i can i can pause it whenever i want go and get a drink um i don't have to spend a fortune to do it you know i, th- I think yeah, that's exactly yeah and you can invite friends around and it's free yeah. as well yes, so, yeah i mean <laughs> before i mean people in the 60s were huddled around tiny black and white tvs weren't yeah. So it's a world away from the golden age of cinema and going out to the theatre. Mm. You have to have a social reason, really, to go out to uh, any event, be it a music concert or a film or anything like that. Otherwise, you may as well just sit at home and watch, yeah. watch it on your phone. Well, this is what Secret Cinema and Psalm were, were supposed to bring back to the cinematic experience, weren't they? Yeah, sort of... Tarantino tried as, as well, didn't he? Did he? I don't know. What, what was he that? He was a big advocate for getting the experience of the cinema mm. uh, to be more enjoyable. Yeah, what did he try and do to, to achieve that? Did he have any particular sort of uh, yeah. thing that he did? I think memory's slightly hazy of it now. But it was to do with 65 millimeter prints. Yeah. And obviously film projectors. Um, so he had an amazing cinematic picture that was far more art house and far more luxurious than the average kind of cinema screen. Oh, this was like, this was Hateful Eight. Yeah, the Hateful Eight, yeah. And he actually went on tour with the film. So he was. Uh, available to meet the audience before the film, do an interview after, that kind of thing. And so he was like a touring musician in that respect. Uh, I'd go out to Manchester right now, go to a cinema, if I could watch The Hateful Eight with Tarantino. I remember watching The, the Master um, on the 70 mil tour. That was um, oh, I see. five per f- 60, 65 mil. So it was like, um, it's a very nice, nice aspect ratio. <laughs> was, I remember watching that on 65 in, um, in the Odeons, in one of the Odeons in Leicester Square. And it was, I loved the film and it was, it looked lovely watching it on a 65 mil print. It's, it's like you, you yep. always think it's going to be the ultimate resolution, but when you watch it compared to a really sharp, you know, Sony 4K triple laser, it actually looks soft, but it's nice. It's nice soft, you know, it isn't it eye-rakingly sharp. It's really sort of organic yeah, and you get all that you movement. Got, you've got grain. the detail, you've got the, uh, the resolution, but it mm. doesn't fizz. It's just a gentle uh, mm. micro contrast, isn't it? That looks yeah. very cinematic and dreamlike. We've been trying to re- replicate that look for years yeah. on <laughs> digital. Yeah, digital. God, I used to do things on the the five fifty and six hundred D where I'd have like an an After Effects preset. So I'd do my edit. And I could export it, or I'd, I'd, no, I'd send it over as a dynamic linked comp into After Effects, and then I could layer down more grading stuff off. It's like an offline process in After Effects. Nothing's even close to real time. This is before Resolve would run, you know, everything real time on GPUs. It yeah. was, uh, and do like layers of different grains and weird 
com- sort of weird things in Magic Bullet looks. and Yeah, to mess up the image, make it more organic. Yeah, and, and then I do like a, a wiggle. So I had I tried to simulate gate weave by having it sort of weaving randomly back and forth and also having it shudder up and down, which was like the, the frames being slightly out of alignment. I used to trick all of this trick all of this filmic stuff into it and then sometimes I'd process that through one more layer of film LUT to make it look like you'd printed it back you know onto a projection print and it's like eventually it looks nice but then you end up thinking I know the process I'm not sure if anyone sees that process but I know it's there and I'm happy with how it looks but I I do like doing that sort of stuff still like in in nodes and resolve like you know converting back and forth and adding extra grain it's a real it's a real skill and a sensitivity as an artist to be able to produce mm. the look and the color uh, grading and all that side of it and the the process but then there's been not as much emphasis on what people are viewing it on mm. so if all that nice uncompressed footage with gentle grain and micro contrast mm-hmm. gets shoved onto youtube and people yeah. are watching it <laughs> in 720p on a phone Price. It, it reminds me of um, what's his name? Oh, I've forgotten. Like uh, you think you watched a film on a fucking phone? <laughs> no, I don't which know. director was that? I don't David know. Lynch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. good. David Lynch was so anti-phone, but sometimes I've enjoyed on a big phone, really up close, uh, really emotional experiences. Yeah. watching YouTube music videos and stuff. It is quite like that, that size thing as well, having a big phone close up. It's quite a lot like a big screen far away. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's slightly different because of the 3D depth of it. But if it's in a dark room, you can almost trick yourself. into. And I also tried it in VR once, like watching a film in, in VR. Yeah, yeah. So even though you've actually got a phone screen strapped to your eyes with two lenses, you can. it does look and feel like you're in a cinema. You've got the screen door effect ruins it a bit at the moment, but eventually it, you won't have that sort of slight pixelation of your view uh, because the resolution will be high enough so it's all about tricking the brain isn't it tricking the senses into believing that it's uh poetic yes yeah what's it going to say oh yeah you because you actually went to the same thing that i did but i didn't know you were there which was adam (laughs) curtis and massive attacks um piece in the abandoned train station in manchester you went to that in manchester yeah because i remember we we, we've forgotten by we had a brief conversation we Uh both mentioned it and i was there with another friend of mine and i didn't know you were there but yeah it was it was so for those listening it was a one-off i believe performance of a special cut of an adam curtis film which is one of his usual sort of plots about like linking together sort of uh communist punks with um modern with putin's modern sort of uh in fact it actually became hypernormalization in a way didn't it the film hypernormalization it used a lot of the similar footage but but it was soundtracked by massive attack and you had yeah what was it like six or eight uh projection muslins hung down with massive laser projectors projecting all the, his film while massive uh-huh. attack played a live live set and that was a phenomenal experience yeah, they were actually there behind the screen. Yeah. Yeah, they were actually playing. Well, it yeah, was yeah, such an yeah. uh, orthodox concert. A lot of people thought, ah, oh, massive attack gig, let's go. And they rocked up with a pint of beer. And then yeah. Adam Curtis's documentary came up all around them. And it was mainly the sort of, it was basically a film screening with a yeah. with an associated gig rather than a gig with some vi- visuals wasn't it it was like it was the other yeah. way around to what people thought yeah. it was. but I sort of knew so, in advance but <laughs> it's like I wasn't in that crew but yeah, I think a lot of people were he had a lot of Mancunians just stood around going what 
the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, I do remember some confusion in the audience. I loved it. Though. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> that was a proper experience, you know. I love Adam Curtis. Like, his documentaries are very sort of uh, complex, hard-to-grasp theories, mm. very down-a-rabbit-hole um, stuff. And it's very difficult to get your head around it, but it's subliminally clever. So uh, amazing the theories that he come out he comes out with, mm. and so bone chilling as well. Yeah, yeah. like the Russians. He compared Solaris, you know, the Tarkovsky film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He com- compared that to the Russians going into Afghanistan yeah. and trying to <laughs> win a, a battle there, and in Solaris. The spaceship goes to a, a, a strange planet and starts to irradiate it to try and influence it, to try and change it, without realising that the planet was irradiating them. <laughs> so the the captain of the spaceship starts seeing his dead wife come back to life, and he has all these hallucinations. And he drew a parallel with the Russian soldiers Going, going into Afghanistan with a completely different um, culture and just, just coming back completely different themselves and broken. Yeah. Almost as if they've been irradiated by this toxic war zone. I guess it happened to the Americans too with Iraq. A lot of soldiers just came back completely traumatised, broken. Yeah, and irradiated as well from, um, from what was it called? That uranium ammunition, wasn't it? People had depleted uranium ammunition, so there was a lot of uh, oh, radiation knocking around as well, oddly. Be interested to see what he comes up with next, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> he leans so hard on dystopia, and now that we've gone through the COVID thing, I, I think the only thing he's going to be able to do is make a film about that because it's such a modern dystopia, <laughs> dystopian thing yeah. to happen that um, I, I can't imagine he'll be able to avoid it as a subject matter. So I'd expect to see something from him on about that at some point within the next few years. I, I do like the format he uses, all that sort of using stock footage, just endless trawling through stock footage libraries and mixing with unorthodox music and text overlays, you know, and then weaving a story out of what seemed to be completely unconnected threads. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty brilliant way of making film. Sequences are a bit like a mood piece where you've got this uh, stock footage, documentary-style fly-on-the-wall stuff, set to beautiful music that matches it and that tells a poet poetic story through the combination of the audio track and the pictures. Yeah. And it's very abstract the way he uses it. But then he puts this highly effective narration on top of it, which is like very dystopian and kind mm. of spine tingling, really, and makes you really think and see things for the first time, really. I need to catch up yeah. and watch his stuff again. Because yeah. a lot of it a... is so dense and complex, so easy to forget. Specifics. All watched over by machines of loving grace, Century of the Self, The Trap, oh, Power yeah, of yeah. Nightmares. Yeah, The Power of Nightmares is the one. And yeah. I think it's about how governments weave a narrative and in order to give them a mandate to control and to rule over society. And in the Reagan era, the mandate needed the enemy of the Russian communists and the Cold War. But after that vanished, after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
the narrative had to be completely changed. There was some interesting stuff popped out years ago about this sort of old COINTELPRO and um, those mm-hmm. bizarre 50s American experiments where they uh, sort of experimented with remote viewing and that sort of thing. And they were 100% real. And people always thought they were sort of a weird rumor that was just in the minds of the crazed. And actually, it turns out these things were being done for real. <laughs> they, were, they were genuinely investigating psychic phenomena to see if they could use them to spy on Russia. It's amazing. <laughs> actually true. I think that's what The Men Who Stared at Goats is about. That, um, that film by... Uh, the Coen brothers, it's about oh, a group of people who, who were like in, they were investigating it as a sort of CIA thing to see if the, these people had psychic powers they could kill people with. And the idea was they could stare at these goats and make the goats' hearts stop. <laughs> so they were <laughs> trying to see if they could train soldiers to kill people with their minds. But it actually happened. It wasn't just nonsense, it was real. <laughs> it's wow. stranger than fiction. <laughs> Much stranger than fiction. Well, it's a, a real rabbit hole we've gone down with this camera podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. We <laughs> ended up at the menu star at goats. <laughs> I suppose the the overarching thing, in a way, one of one of the few overarching topics was the the difficulty that we're all sort of we're all struck at the moment by the difficulty um, that the arts is having because of the corona situation. And yep. the small amount of help that people are getting, if any, and how hard it's going to be to turn back to normality. Like so much of all creative work is going online, not just in how it's distributed, but also how it's created, uh, which for something mm. like cameras, where it's all about physical reality and capturing people really performing and really doing things, uh, is quite a sad, it's a, quite a sad time. I mean, I just, I got the S1H yeah. just, just, around about the start of the lockdown thing and I thought I'm going to shoot so many things with this and I've actually shot quite a small amount because of the difficulties that we've had so I think that's the sort of thing that's in everyone. Yeah exactly and the lack of travel and and the lack of socialising a little bit too. It's different for everyone. People have handled it differently. Some people have just thrown caution to the wind Gone yes. wild, gone out for a curry every night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this, yeah. And so that's some people, not very responsible. Some people have kind of suffered for that as well, haven't they? Yeah, <laughs> Let's be some, honest. some of them are dead. <laughs> yes, yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, you've always been online with the website. Obviously, that was, that was the whole point of it. When you first started it, were people still doing sort of magazines for this kind of thing? And most of those have dried up and disappeared, and it's all sort of online now. But how, how would you see your because your website has a lot, the forum is quite a big part of it and also you have a very individual voice and and you tend to write about just what you want to rather than what people would expect you to, which I I respect. Um, How how do you see that translating into a a YouTube channel? How much of that are you going to keep and what are you going to do differently? What's the plan? Yeah, so it's a very different medium, I think. Mm. Um, It's more like uh, television, shopping channel, TV. Um, It's... uh, yeah, I think, to be honest, I do still enjoy doing written articles, actually. Mm. But I want to broaden my day-to-day stuff so it's not all about just writing about cameras. And yeah. I'd like to get back to shooting more. Because uh, I used to put out reviews and the clip on Vimeo would be mm. like a mood piece with Radiohead on it. Yeah, And then came all the DMCA <laughs> oh, controversy yes, yeah. on vimeo which put a stop to all that creative stuff so yeah i could go back to doing what i was 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 doing before 
and yeah. go back to living in Berlin and stuff. But I think I want a nice base in the UK to work out of and then get back to meeting people and collaborating. But also this podcast, the whole purpose of this podcast is to enliven up the day and do something fun, really, and to get to know people on a more human level rather than just tapping like on their Facebook posts and yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think... Um... If if it, if there's anything that says that that's a good direction to take, it's things like the success of Joe Rogan's podcast. I mean, I must have listened to a yeah, hundred yeah. hours of that guy now, and it it yeah, is just yeah. because it's you know it's there are long uncurated conversations that are just between people who share your interests or who you're interested in, or just people who are interesting. And, and those, I mean, he's now the highest paid artist in Spotify, and he's not even a musician, <laughs> so you know, what the highest paid, you know, in terms of like the lump sum they gave him, off, yeah. one off, and it was he um, had such fascinating guests, but he's yeah. also a very good interviewer. He just lets them speak. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes unless he gets really stoned and talks about DMT, and then he then he does go on. <laughs> it depends. If you get him onto DMT, I think you're a bit a bit screwed for getting a word in edgeways. But other than that, it's <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you for coming on as well. It's been a fun rambling conversation, hasn't yeah. it? If uh, if you want to subscribe, then do. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I think but you I reckon... should leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.